This evening, we will be looking at Lord's Day 10, which can be found on page 211 in your Forms and Prayers book. And our scripture reading this evening will be Jeremiah 29, verses 10 through 14. That can be found on page 833, 833 of your Pew Bible, verses 10 through 14 of Jeremiah 29 and Lord's Day 10. Before we read, let's ask for God's blessing. Father of all power and sovereign Lord of all things, we confess and believe that you do uphold all with your power and might, and that your attributes come to bear, and that not a hair can fall from our head without your will. In fact, everything that happens, whether it be good or bad, is in your sovereign control. And we ask, Lord, that we would see in this a a praiseworthy aspect of your very being, and as well, personally, we would see application to our life for confidence and hope and strength. And so we pray that in this message we would be comforted, comforted by what is one of the most comforting doctrines that we possess. And we pray as well that we would be, be pushed and we would be exhorted, exhorted to trust even more and to to bury into this truth and doctrine and that we would find great strength there as well as fruit in our own life, no matter what we face. We pray that your word would be to us that knowledge, that understanding, and the hope for our life in our Savior. Amen. This evening, first, we will begin with Lord's Day 10 and hear the doctrine, and then we'll turn to Jeremiah and see a time in which the people had that doctrine applied to their own life. Lord's Day 10 asks, What do you understand by the providence of God? And the answer is, Providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God, by which God upholds, as with his hand, heaven and earth and all creatures, And so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things, in fact, come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. How does the knowledge of God's creation and providence help us? We can be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and for the future we can have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature will separate us from his love, for all creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will they can neither move nor be moved. And then we turn to God's word in Jeremiah 29, verses 10 through 14. And just to to set the context here, this passage deals with a situation in which the exiles, both in Jerusalem and Babylon, were listening to false prophets. And these false prophets were coming in and saying this captivity would be short. And they were saying that this is the people of God in Jerusalem, that they can't be brought down, they can't be long in this exile, and they were giving wrong teaching, wrong theology, and and just a wrong prophecy, incorrect and false, that this exile wouldn't be everything that the holy prophets, Jeremiah and the others, had said it would be. 
And so they, they proclaim this, and Jeremiah is responding in this whole section. He's responding to them and telling them that they are wrong and that the people are not to heed them, that in fact, this exile would be long. This exile would be 70 years, that, that it would be harder on them than what the prophets are saying, and yet they have this hope. They have this hope of what the Lord will do through it and in it. And this is where we see here in these verses, in verses 10 through 14, the doctrine of providence applied to the people even as they are in and enter exile. And so as we read this, they are in a very, very hard situation. They are suffering. It's it's a tame word to say exile. What does exile mean? It means broken families, separation, death, being taken away, being placed in slavery with all that that entails and someone owning you and your body and all these things, separation from God's people, that's what exile is. And so this is what the people are facing, something very hard. In Jeremiah 29, 10-14, we read, For thus says the Lord, When seventy years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. So we see in this passage, the Lord's responsible for it all. Now we don't claim evil or put that at God's, at God's hands, but the Lord is sovereignly governing all of this. Notice in verse 14 how he said that I have, I'll take you back from all the nations and places where I have driven you. This is the Lord's doing, and he will also be the one to bring them back. And then we go back further in those verses, for I know, that these well-known verses, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Sometimes we quote that verse and take it a bit out of context as if it would mean that nothing bad is going to happen because the Lord knows all of our plans. He knows the plans he has for us and it's for our good and welfare. But you see it in this context who he's talking to. He's talking to those who are going to undergo severe trial. And what they're supposed to trust in is the plans of the Lord and what he has for them. That is the understanding of God's providence. It's always dangerous to make judgments without the whole picture. In art, there's a technique called anamorphosis, which is a distortion, a distorted projection or drawing that appears normal when viewed from one particular point or with a suitable mirror or lens. Anamorphosis is where you can't see the picture and and the figures and the design. You can't understand if you're viewing it from one angle. There is a famous example of this in a painting called The Ambassadors, painted in 1533 by Hans Holbein the Younger. And in the bottom of the picture, and this picture is of two Tudor period men dressed in in that garb, and and in the bottom of the picture, and it's, it's a very beautiful picture, but in the center of it, it looks like there's this just blob on the painting. It's, it's, a, it's a glob. It's like you're wondering, well, what happened? You would think that the, the, the author, the artist, made a, a huge mistake. 
It doesn't make any sense, and yet when the painting is viewed and it shifts and you see it from a different vantage point and a different perspective, what happens is that blob of color becomes a clear picture of a human skull. Now, I have no idea what his intention was for that. I'm using this as an example of that art, art technique where when you can't see the whole picture and when this has been done in such a way where you can only view it from one perspective or through one lens by one angle, then you see what's being done. You know, if you were just to look at that picture from that one side, from the one perspective straight on, you would say, why is this even hanging up? He should have restarted. And yet, when you see it from that other perspective, you get the point. And that's what we have here. The point is, without the correct vantage point, or without the correct understanding, what we'll see will be broken and incomplete and not the whole story. And that's often where God calls us to be, in such a place where we cannot see everything he's doing, where we don't understand the whole picture, and in fact, what we see is as bad as a, as a picture that's otherwise beautiful, but, but splattered paint on it. And it seems to make no sense. And yet, God knows the plans he has for his people and what he will do and carry it out. And this is, there's many examples of this in, in God's word. Think of the story of Joseph. Joseph's story is a rather sad one. Joseph's story doesn't seem to make any sense, and you wouldn't see God's faithful hand there in a brother who was almost murdered by his other brothers, sent in slavery, and then was accused of, of fornication or attempted rape, and then thrown into prison, and then stuck there forever. And then finally he prospers, but he's taken away in a, in a land far away from his home. It would seem like, well, what's, what's the truth there? But then at the end of the day, Joseph tells his brothers, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. Finally, the vantage point is seen. He, through all the trials of his life, was brought to a place where he'd preserve the covenant people of God as being the second most powerful man in Egypt. That's the providence of the Lord at work. There's other examples. Naomi's life is one bitter, broken, hard pill to swallow. It doesn't make sense to her. She calls herself bitter. And then at the end of the book, what we see through a faithful daughter-in-law and kinsman redemption, we see a royal genealogy and the line of David being formed and fashioned through one such as her. And so her life was actually not ultimately bitter, but she couldn't see the whole picture. She couldn't view her life from that vantage point. We think of Job, one of the classic examples, where unless you know the beginning of the book and its end, it would appear as if God got it all wrong, but he didn't. Then you look at Christ, the best example. His life appears like a major defeat as he's sealed away in a tomb until the tomb opens and resurrection pours forth and we see everything that had happened was the will of the Lord. He knows the plans he has for us. He works through them all. You, for one to judge a painting, for one to judge life without seeing it from God's angle is a mistake and foolish. We don't have the capacity to see it, and we won't. We don't have the standing to have that vantage point. But what this doctrine does give us is the strength to stand, and it does give us the perspective on which to view it all. We won't see the answers, necessarily. But we see the point, and we see how we respond to it. And that's the providence and what we know of providence. 
What do we know about providence? This is where our catechism question and answer comes in. We know that providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God. We know that providence is one of the most dear doctrines that we have, one of the most applicable doctrines that we have. This is what we cling to. We must always have God in view, and this is very closely connected to the prior Lord's Day. Lord's Day 9, we learned of the fact that we're, we're children of God, that our Heavenly Father is there, and then we go right into Lord's Day 10 and what that means for every aspect of our life. It's comforting. It's the comfort that we need. And then we see how it helps us in this question and answer. How does that help you? We can be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and for the future we can have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature will separate us from his love. For all creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will they can neither move nor be moved. Those are some of the best words of the Catechism as far as comfort is concerned. And they're all true. And they're what we have from God's word and application of his of what he's wrote, what he's written and revealed to us. Providence is something we're starving for. It's pastoral and it's comforting. It's what we need. And it, it is what's the sweet music that is played when life couldn't be better. When it's sunny out and you would think, you'd actually be hard-pressed to say, is this really a cursed world? My life seems so great. Well, that's the providence of the Lord. It's the music that is sung at those times. Providence is as well that lifeboat in a storm where your life is far from sunny, but a mess and being rocked back and forth. It's that doctrine that lets us rejoice and it lets us stand firm with confidence and hope and thanksgiving. The Catechism's definition of providence is easy to see. What are we talking about? What is providence? Providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which God upholds and rules all things. It goes on to describe what all those things might be to, to give a representation of anything in life. But the definition itself is just that. God's almighty power to uphold, govern, and rule all things. We understand that God preserves all things in creation. He upholds it. He keeps it working. He keeps, it, he keeps everything active. He sustains it preserving all that he has made. That's the power of providence. We know as well that God uses his power to work through the laws he's established in creation itself. He's established laws. He's established order and how these things will work, and he governs all things according to that order. And he's created beings. He's created mankind who have free will and who operate. These are what are, We are what are called secondary causes, the Lord is the first mover, the primary. He's the first cause, but man is a secondary cause. Man has free will. We act, and yet, though a profound mystery, it's the truth that the Lord governs even that. His power is over these things to bring about his will, and that's the governance that he has. He governs and brings all things to appointed ends, to what he would have done. He controls all. This is what Romans 8.28 says, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purposes. The providence of God is how he works through what are special means, where God will use miraculous signs and wonders and use these to restore his people. Where at times he breaks the normal order of the things he has created, interposes, interjects himself into that natural order, and does a miraculous work and saves his people that way. That is as well the providence of God. The providence of God is his action, his activity in everything. 
God rules over all, the good and the bad. Which then we would ask, well then are we, are we mere robots? What is our free will with that? Well, we're not puppets on a string, we're not mere robots. The Bible teaches us that God sovereignly governs all things, but it also teaches us that we're fully responsible for what we do. Yes, a profound mystery, but nonetheless true. The Westminster Confession of Faith in chapter 5, article 2 says, Although in relation to the foreknowledge and decree of God, the first cause, all things come to pass immutably and infallibly, yet by the same providence he ordereth them to fall out according to the nature of second causes, either necessarily, freely, or contingently. What is that saying? It's saying that God rules all things in that when you act, you're acting. You're not a robot. You're not a puppet. And yet, God governs all things for his purposes. He's ordained it all. And though we are secondary causes, God is not, God is not out of control. This doctrine of providence doesn't also allow us to excuse lack of prudence. I, mean, I wonder if you've heard this. And maybe you've even said it. I, 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 guess, I guess I have to confess I've been one guilty of saying such a thing. You climb into your car. And apart from the fact that it's the law in some states, and it might be every state, you have the whole seatbelt issue. And, and I was one of those who in, who, in a bit of arrogance, you climb into the car and, and you'll say, I don't need my seatbelt. God's in control. Okay? Well, I would submit to you that that and such things is a misuse of this doctrine of providence where that is isn't acting prudently. Because God has ordained such rules as gravity and laws of motion and these things that function and act and we're required to make decisions that, that conform to the world that he has created. We're required to act in wisdom. We're required to live a healthy life. We're required to do such things that we know to be best and good according to the wisdom he's given us, according to what he's revealed in creation itself, common sense, and what he's revealed in his word. We are required to make decisions in that way. So providence doesn't mean lack of prudence. It doesn't mean that we can just do anything we want. It doesn't mean that we can go to a cliff and say, if I step off this cliff, God's providence must mean that he will either have to save me or that my death was, death was in his plan and thus for my good. Well, if you were to do that thing, you would quick, quickly see what the laws of gravity show you, and what you would have done is disobeyed God, and in his grace, he can forgive such things, but you've nevertheless disobeyed him. It's not prudent. It's not acting according to what he has told us to do. Calvin has a, a good quote on this. He says, The Lord has inspired in men the arts of taking counsel and caution by which to comply with his providence in the preservation of life itself. What Kelvin's saying is that God has, has given to men the, the ability, even the command, to take counsel with each other, to exercise caution, to live in such ways that we best apply his word and what he's called us to do. Now, if that's true, how then do we take the comfort of providence? How do we understand those verses that talk about the, the, the threats he will avoid for his people, him being our shield and defender what do we do? We're still meant to use those to take comfort by them. Such passages are those that give to us strength and rest in peace. And because we all face this issue, we will tell ourselves, or you may have told someone else, trust in God. 
Everything's in his providential control. All things work together for good. And the response might be, that's all good and well, but I still need to make a decision. We still need to decide whether I take this medication. We still need to decide whether I get that vaccine. We still need to decide whether I move or change jobs. All these things still have to be decided. What do we do? Are we able to take peace and comfort in the providence of God, or do we instead say, well, we have to, under, we have to make this decision, and it's on us, and, and, and lose any peace we might gain from God's control? Here's the answer. Use God's word. Use what he's revealed. Use what he's revealed in, in general revelation, which is, is what he's created. Wisdom we can gain through what we see in the world. Wisdom through men. Experience. Use the wisdom you've gained there. Use the wisdom, especially that he's revealed in his word, the things he's called you to do, his law. You weigh your decision in that way, and then you make your decision, and in that you have peace. Because ultimately, whether you choose right or wrong on all those issues, God works it. So you see we're keeping all things together. Does that, does that excuse a lack of prudence? No. God calls us to research the medications, to look into the job, to see if it would be right and good, to use everything within our minds and capacities to make good decisions, but our trust and hope is knowing that ultimately, even if we decided incorrectly, we chose a bad medication, we ultimately took a job that we don't like or is difficult, even in those things, God is working out his plan. Even our failures are necessary. And so here's what you do. You climb into the car and you click your seatbelt. But you don't drive in fear of what might happen. That's what providence tells us. It's not recklessness. It doesn't condone a recklessness. But it does bring to us peace. Peace and understanding that whatever happens to us, God will not let us either be moved by another or we can't move ourselves without his will. His plan is not derailed. His plan is perfect, and he knows the plans he has for his people. Second, what is the providence and what we live? What's the application of it? This doctrine is easier to define and harder to live, and this is where I hope we would be pressed. This is where I hope we would see that we have a long way to go in our growth here in trusting in the Lord. To learn anything, you need to start out small. You don't just try to, to, to learn any skill or, or activity by doing the whole thing. You don't try to learn skiing by going up to the steepest hill. You start on the small hills and you, you, you work from there up. Well, the same is true spiritually. As we are hoping to learn providence, how do we learn it? Well, we learn it in all the mundane matters of life. We learn it when we trust that God's will is even in the math tests that we take and the grade that might come from it. When we've done our best, we trust in his providence. Even if we haven't done our best and we are repent of it, we know he works through it. We trust in him for the family budget. We trust in him with the workload, these daily activities. And as we turn all over to him, knowing that none of these things can happen without his fatherly hand and will, we gain strength and maturity of faith that even as greater difficulties may come, greater suffering might come, we are already predisposed to be those to trust it, to be those to respond 
The Lord's will is done, and it is right and good. This is how we, we learn and grow. This means it's very significant what you do in all your, your thinking. This means that even in really small matters, you can be learning to trust the Lord. Like we said, is it, is it a test at school? Is it something small like that? Is it something big or bigger to us? Is it that changing job? Do we trust the Lord? Do we trust in his providence and that he will guide and govern us? Do we trust him in that family budget when we look at the bills and see how can we pay this and question that? And then you see the, the, the catechism, how it answers all these things in application. It says we can be patient in adversity. So the doctrine of providence and God's control and will over all things mean you can be patient in adversity. The footnote of the catechism, one of the references, is Job 1.21, where he says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. In this difficult time of life, he showed patience in adversity, and we have to ask ourselves, are we patient in adversity? When adversity comes... It can be anything, something you don't like. Are we patient? Are we long-suffering? Do we endure? Or rather, does that immediately turn into grumbling and complaining and being upset? As our response, I really hate this job. It requires so much of me. Do we grumble and complain? When there's difficulty in families and dramas, do we complain about that? Think it should be otherwise. Get upset. Take comfort that in, within you, you have the Spirit of God who grows and causes us to grow and ask in these ways to grow in that patience and adversity. That we would be those to be long-suffering and enduring. And then you see the Catechism says as well that we're to be thankful in prosperity. And here the Catechism references other texts, Deuteronomy 8.10, where Moses speaks of the prosperity in the land that they will have from God. He says, And you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Second, 1 Thessalonians 5.18, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. I'm really glad that the Catechism phrases it this way and includes us. This is helpful for us in two ways. The first way it's helpful is that we understand the Lord really does bless us. He really does. And even when we're in prosperity, we can, we can see it and thank him for it. We don't take the responsibility, we don't take the, the glory of it, we know that it's his and it recognizes that even, even in the midst of difficulty, there's a prosperity that we have that, in which we can be thankful for. Even if it's just the life that we have in God himself, we have much to be thankful for, even if everything was stripped away. And, and for many of us, that's not the situation we're in. So that's the first way it can be helpful, just the recognition that we have prosperity in the Lord and that he get, gives good gifts. But the other way it corrects us is, is to, to help us see what we're very prone to do, and that is to jump from one trial to the next. It's very easy to do. Something's bothering you. Something's on the horizon. You're not looking forward to this thing. And then it passes. Often, it will pass in such a way where the Lord answered it. 
or he blessed you in it. And then what do we do? You go looking at the next thing you don't like. And it's sort of like we're, we're, ice, we're iceberg hopping. You're jumping from the one problem to the next, and you're forgetting all that the Lord is doing for you in these issues and in these ways. And instead, what we end up doing is we live our life from the vantage point of a brokenness instead of a thankful prosperity in the Lord. Because we're not taking account of all that he's given and blessed us with. We skip over it. So we're to be thankful in prosperity. And then it says, For the future we can have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature will separate us from his love. Good confidence for the future. When you look at the future, is it generally characterized in confidence? Often, dare I say most of the time when we look to the future, it's with trepidation, fear, and doubt. Again, looking at the things we don't want to go through. Looking at the pain that we might have to bear, but what we have in Christ, what we have in our Father and in Providence, is a confidence in the future. In our faithful God and Father that no creature will separate us from his love. So much of our fear and anxiety is the what if. Well, that's not describing the confidence that we have with the Lord And yet we are to be confident in him. You see, all of this, what we're talking about with providence, we're generally more at ease to describe this doctrine or to describe what happens. And if it happens, then it's bad. We'll say, well, the Lord permitted it to happen. The Lord allowed this for a greater purpose. And that's not incorrect. It doesn't mean necessarily it's a bad way of saying it. But what we should see is, and what we should even say, is that this trial, this suffering has come to me by God's fatherly hand. It sort of puts a different spin on it, doesn't it? It it, it isn't simply that God allowed it to happen. It's that he ordained it for his purposes and for your good. It puts him in more firm control of these things allows us to have more confidence that even in these things we dislike, even in these things that are so hard, there is his fatherly love. We can't see that end goal. We're at a different vantage point. We can't see that finished picture, and it looks like a mistake to us, but not to God. That's the confidence we have. And this changes us from merely tolerating God's sovereignty to rejoicing and embracing it. Often we do live with that, merely just tolerating what he's ordained, not living in a, in a joy with it, that not, not a hair can fall from our heads without his will. In fact, much of what we complain and murmur about is nothing short of complaining about God without even realizing it. We don't see it. We insulate ourselves from it. But what it means is that when you complain about aspects of your job or your daily routine or these things that you don't like, whose door are you putting the blame on? God himself. means that when we grumble and are like the Israelites in the the wilderness, grumbling away and complaining away, what we're described as is a stiff-necked people 
who don't see what the plans of the Lord are, or who don't trust it, who don't approach it with confidence and rather react and tolerate what the Lord has done, not even realize what we're doing is telling him he doesn't know better or he doesn't know what we should have or do. That we don't like what he's called for us. We don't have a right to murmur against the plan that God gave to us, even if it be difficult circumstances, even if it be something we don't like, even if we're living in the town we don't want to be in, away from family who we want to be with. His plans are better. It means every phone call that you receive, every oncology report that's taken, every procedure, every spasm of back pain, every loved one you bury, every sickness you face, every meeting you must attend, every field you must plant, every house you must wire, every diaper you must change, every meal you must make, comes to us by the fatherly hand of God. This doctrine cuts through our ability to complain and murmur. And again, I want to exhort us and I want to have us strive to grow here Because sadly, too few of us ever reach the spiritual maturity to give God joy in these circumstances. And that's to our shame. It's to our shame that too often we withhold the praise and glory of God that we should have and the Christ-like confidence that we can have. It doesn't erase the difficulty, and nor would we say that it's not difficult. We're not asking that we don't cry. We're not asking that we don't grieve. We're asking that we trust. We're asking that we don't murmur. We're asking that we endure. We can grumble about many things. We can grumble about the economy and how it affects our wealth. We can grumble about our bodies and the loss of our hair. We can grumble about the additions of a few pounds that we can't get rid of. We can grumble about growing old, but is this not also in God's plan? You see, for this is a bit of a, a, a jibe, but for some of us, God's providence has taken quite, more, quite a few more hairs from our head. He's numbered them all. Some of us, he's numbered a lot more than for others, right? Some of them has fallen more, but he's, he's numbered them all, is what Scripture says. He knows them all. They've never fallen to a place that he didn't ordain. The hair is on our head. Something that is, in fact, rather insignificant to our life. He numbers them all. Imagine coming to work each day. I want us to think about it this way as as we live our life. Imagine you were coming to work and we say God is our boss and each day he assigns to us our duties for the day. Here's what you should accomplish. Here's your workload. And imagine for one day you show up to work and God is your boss and he gives you your task and you take it from his hand and you read it and you look down and you say, oh, come on. Really? I'm on sick duty again. I just got over a cold, and now you're going to give me another one. And on the way to work, you're going to make me go through a flat tire and an hour delay to my already long commute. You've got to be kidding me. And you're going to make me go through all of these things, headache from this cold, hunger. I'm going to get home, and I'm going to have a kid handed to me because my wife had a hard day. That's, that's what you have in store for me. Are you serious? That's actually not a far-fetched reality to what we often do, just take out the fact that we don't realize we're saying it to God's face. You see, this illustration shows that would would we dare to receive our our daily routine, here it is, here's what I'm going to call you to go for, and to, to actually look at him and to say, you've got to be kidding me. 
This is just, it's hard to do. And yet, that doesn't excuse it. You can, you can see how fulsome the Catechism's answer is and how God's Word gives us so many examples of to trust all things. What is then the correct response to, to God who gives us such a day? Because that's a bad day. There's no way around it. That's a horrible day. And we don't, we're not happy in the flat tire, and we're not happy in the drama at home, and we're not happy we have a cold, but what is the providential, confident, Christ-like response to such a thing? It's to say, yes, sir. In your will and in your strength, we will endure, we will go through it. For your greater purposes, we trust. We trust and obey you. This is Christ-like confidence, and it isn't to cheapen or demean the trial. It's to fix our gaze past the trial, past the difficulty, into the one who's greater than it. And we can say in this, even as we're thinking of all the ways we could grow, this almost more than any other, we're never going to reach perfection on this earth. And yet even in striving, what we see is the comfort that this Lord's Day gives. It is this truth to which we cling. It is to his love that he does all of these things. And even as we read in, I, read in Jeremiah, God knows the plans he has for his people, and ultimately those plans are for prosperity and blessing. The end goal of providence is joy-filled trust in service to God our Father through Christ our Lord. Christ-like confidence that actually makes every moment of the day mean something. Because otherwise it wouldn't. And it means we can give him glory every time we stand a trial and have a good attitude. We bring to him praise. And as we close, I want to end with those very comforting words at the end of question and answer 28. For all creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will, they can neither move nor be moved. Amen. Let's pray. Great God in heaven, we see a power, your power, to uphold all things, to preserve all things, to govern all things, to work through secondary causes, through work through all these means, to give us a task to do, to, to make decisions in obedience, trusting in you. And we see at the end of all of this, a doctrine so comforting. The doctrine that means you have put all of our steps before us, you have planned each one, and that whatever happens, happens from our Father's hand. We pray for strength. This is so far beyond anything we can accomplish, and so we ask that you would work this in us. And we even ask that, that we would be able to do it, even if we have to work out in small ways and work up to that greater trust. And we ask it as well for those who are in the middle of dealing with profound struggles and trials. May the doctrine of providence give to them hope, give to them peace. We pray in Jesus' name.